The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Let's go ahead and start. All of you come on in and take a seat. We're going to have a great study tonight. I'm looking forward to it. Tonight we're going to be talking about the biblical evidence for the deity of Christ. Uh, We are studying in Grudem Systematic Theology. I use Grudem as a starting point for these handouts. For the most part, the things you see are his outline and some of his comments. But tonight I'm going to be adding some additional things as well. Uh, There's really no topic that would be more vital for us to understand than the person of Christ. He is our Savior. Uh, he is our God. We worship Him. It's the essence of Christianity that we worship Jesus of Nazareth as God. And so, uh, that obviously is going to be very much the focal point of the devil's attacks. And so, what is the spirit of Antichrist according to 1 John? Anyone that denies that Jesus has come in the flesh. It's an attack on the deity of Christ. And that's why John wrote, I think, the whole Gospel of John. We're going to spend some time in that tonight. Uh, for us, it is vital that we understand Uh, that Jesus is God from the Scriptures. And I think that there's a totally an intimate connection between the Word of God, the Bible, and the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, all that we know about Him has come mediated to us by the words of the apostles and prophets, right? And so we know Jesus by reading about Him in the Bible. And that's, I think, one of the reasons that the Apostle John begins the Gospel of John, which is written for many purposes, but primarily to prove the deity of Christ, saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That Jesus um, is called there the Word of God. Now, on the fr- uh, I hope you all got one of these handouts um, passed out by some faithful folks. Um, but we are looking at the person of Christ and trying to understand this question, how is Jesus fully God and fully man and yet one person? We've already seen in 1 Timothy 3.16 this quote, Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in the body was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on the world, and was taken up in glory. Obviously, speaking of Christ. Uh, By overview, we've talked about the person of Christ, namely His humanity. We're zeroing in tonight on deity and trying to understand the incarnation, how the deity and humanity relate within the one person of Christ. We'll talk about some of the heresies there have been, some misunderstandings of how the deity and the humanity of Christ uh, relate to one another. Um, next time, God willing, we'll get into the atonement and talk about that. And then from there, the resurrection and ascension and the offices of Jesus Christ. And then go into the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So that's where we're heading right now. At the bottom of page one and into page two, the deity of Christ. And we're going to begin with direct scriptural claims concerning the deity of Christ. Have any of you ever talked to Jehovah's Witnesses? Ever had an opportunity to discuss this topic with them? Isn't it a lot of fun? I'll tell you what, um, uh, you know, the thing with them is that they spend so much time on this one issue. They really do. This is, their, uh, this is the centerpiece of their presentation to the Christian world. I mean, they're always working on people who claim to be Christians, mostly Catholics or others, but trying to come to us and persuade us that Jesus actually is not Jehovah God. 
And so they've got all kinds of verses. Don't even bother with John 1.1. They have like whole weeks of seminars on John 1.1. They're going to tell you things about the Greek language. They've never studied Greek. But they're going to be telling you how there's no definite article there. And that means that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, little a, little g. He's a deity, a God, but he's not the God because there's no definite article there. So they tell us. I'll never forget... Uh, one of my favorite stories from Roger Nicole, who's my systematic theology professor. He was uh, born in Switzerland, spoke six languages, uh, studied uh, Greek and Hebrew, one of the most incredible scholars I've ever met in my life, incredible man of God, telling about an encounter he had at his door with a Jehovah's Witness couple. All right, they came and they had been Jehovah's Witnesses for one of them 18 months and the other had been trained now for three years. And they came and they asked if, if he had time to talk. So he invited them in and they're starting to talk to him about the Greek language. It was really kind of interesting. Uh, they'd had this training. What they forget to tell you, or maybe they don't notice, is that at the end of the gospel, not the very end, but the climax of the gospel, Thomas makes his confession in John chapter 20 in which he says, my Lord and my God. That is the absolute pinnacle of John's gospel. That is the testimony that we must make in order to be saved. The definite article is right there. Literally, it says in the Greek, in the, Greek uh, the Lord of me and the God of me. It's right there. And uh, they don't tell you that in the Jehovah's Witness training uh, manuals or any of those things. But my friends, it's not just one verse. It's not just two verses. It's not just ten. It's woven through the fabric of all the Scripture, the deity of Christ. And that's what we're going to see tonight. Now, the word theos, the Greek word theos, usually refers to God the Father in the New Testament. For the most part, when you see the word theos in there, it's going to refer to God the Father. However, occasionally it is used of Christ. We've already seen that in John 1.1, 1, 1, and I said also concerning Thomas. Uh, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Uh, Romans 9.5, it says, speaking of the Jews, there, theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all forever praised. Now, a lot of these verses, they'll come at it with a different translation. Um, they will say something like, who is forever praised God over all, something like that. They'll try to rearrange it and try to trans translate it in different ways. But Romans 9.5 really is teaching the deity of Christ, uh, that Jesus actually is God in the flesh. 2 Peter 1, uh, 1 says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. So again, it calls Jesus God. Even more fascinating is Hebrews 1.8. Hebrews 1.8 um, says, this is the author of Hebrews writes this, but about the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. Are, are we missing handouts? Do we need some more? People are looking for them. I'm on page two. Do you all not have... Oh, you know what it was? Some of those handouts were from last week. And that's the confused look that you have on your face. I am so sorry. Because you were starting... You were starting to confuse... Yes, brother, that is my fault. I should have said chapter 26, part A, part B, and part C. I am so sorry. Okay, the correct one has writing on the back, page 14, if you have that. Be happy. If you don't, I'm so sorry. Um, maybe somebody who knows the copier can grab one of the good ones and go down and crank out a bunch more. How, how many? Who needs one of these? Would you be willing to do that? If you've got a good one, back, page 14, turn it on the back, some writing, that's the right one. Mitch will be back with about 20 more. Thanks. Sorry, folks. In the meantime... 
We can pretend we're living in the days before printers and copiers and all that, and you'll just learn by listening, and they'll come uh, very soon. Okay. Um, uh, go ahead and then, uh, those of you that don't have an outline, open up to Hebrews chapter 1 and uh, verse 8. And there is a, a really vital verse, all right? There it says, in Hebrews 1.8, it says, But about the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. Now, my question to you is, who is the He in that verse? But about the Son, He says... Yeah, it is God. Now listen, if I can read beginning at Hebrews 1 verse 5, it says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. So God is speaking and he says, you know, you are my son, today I have become your father. He's speaking that to, to Jesus. We know he said that at his baptism. He says it again on the Mount of Transfiguration. But he first said it in the Psalms. And that's what the author is picking up on. Uh, you are my son, today I become your father. That's Psalm 2, verse 7. And, but the author to Hebrews, just to him, as it should be to all of us, the word of God is living. It's not just you know, black marks on a page. God speaks these things. So God the Father is speaking these words. You are my son, today I become your father. So it's God that's speaking. And he says, For which of the, to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Verse 6, And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Oh, that's very striking, isn't it? Because worship should only go to God. And yet here is God commanding worship to the Son. The angels should worship the Son. Uh, that's a very striking thing. Jesus is going to say the same thing in John 5.23. He says, The Father judges no, no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Why? That all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Now, what's another word for honor there? Would it not be worship? That all may worship the Son in the same way they worship the Father. The Father is zealous for that. He's not jealous of His Son. He wants his son to be honored and adored and worshipped and glorified. And so he gives the command here in Hebrews 1. Let all God's angels worship him. But then it says, in speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and the servants flames of fire. Here's verse 8. But about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Now, who's the he there in context? We've been reading it. Who is it? It is God the Father. So what does God the Father call the son here? God. He calls him God. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. The word is theos in the Greek. He calls him God. Now, isn't that an amazing thing to have God the Father call the Son God? But that's what he does. Jesus is God, and that's what we believe. That's what's taught here in Hebrews 1. In the Old Testament, the word God is ascribed to Christ a few times. For example, in Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a son is born, um, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. What's amazing about that string of, of names or titles for Christ there, which are familiar to those of you who have listened to Handel's Messiah, for example, um, but there's a tremendous mingling in those names of the human and the divine element. They're really mixed together. For example, Wonderful Counselor is really literally Miracle Counselor. That's literally what it is. The one who does miracles and gives good, wise counsel. Uh, that's, that's Jesus, isn't it? Isn't he the one who does miracles and gives good advice? Very good advice. 
And the same thing with mighty God. Gibor is a word for a mighty one, a powerful warrior, that kind of thing. It's used frequently of warriors, etc. It's a human term of great might, but then Elohim, God, is a very strong uh, title. It's a blending there of the, of the human and the divine. Uh, this is, this is, these are Jesus' titles. He is called God there in Isaiah 9.6. Now, even more significantly, I think, is in, uh, in the New Testament, this word Lord, kurios, uh, which is used of Jesus again and again and again. Now, in the uh, Old Testament, I've already covered this when I said uh, two weeks ago, I was preaching in uh, Romans 10.9, that if you uh, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, right? And believe in your heart. So I talked about that term Lord. What is the significance of saying Jesus is Lord? I believed, and I said in, in my sermon in Romans 10.9, you are confessing that Jesus is God in the flesh. That's what you're confessing, that he is God. Well, why did I say that? Well, it has to do with the use of this word, Lord. Uh, the Greek word kurios is used uh, 6,814 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to Yahweh. Um, now, what do I mean by Yahweh? Well, it's the, the four-letter word, uh, Hebrew word for God. I don't know if I have any of these markers. Here's one. Um, in the Old Testament, this is the, the name of God, the four letters... Um, J-H-V-H, so I didn't pronounce, do this one correctly. There we go. So this is Y-H-V-H, the four letters. This thing is over and over and over in the Old Testament. Yahweh, okay, or Jehovah. They, they don't really know how to pronounce it, but they guess at Yahweh, okay? Um, the Jews had such a high respect for this, what they call the four letter, the tetragrammaton. They had such a respect for this that whenever they would read a passage and this showed up, which was again and again, they did not want to violate the commandment which said, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So they did not want to even try to pronounce this. Instead, they wrote in, these are all consonants, they, they wrote in the, the vowels, the vowel markers for the, for the uh, word um, Adonai, which is a common expression meaning Lord. So whenever they'd come to Yahweh, they'd never try to pronounce Yahweh Jehovah, they would say Adonai, which is a lower term, uh, just so that they're very careful not to mispronounce God's name. Well, that was what they did, and they were just seeking to protect themselves from violating a commandment. God never commanded uh, that they do that, but that's what they did. And so, Adonai is usually translated Lord, my Lord, literally. When the time came, before the time of Christ, for the translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, it was called the Septuagint. They got a bunch of scholars together, 70 of them, and the tradition has it that they all went into separate booths and translated and they came out. They all matched identically. Oh, what a miracle. That's just a story. But anyway, it was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it was the Bible for Greek-speaking Jews. That's what they read. Whenever this word appeared in the Greek or in the Hebrew, it was brought over in the, with the word kurios into the Greek every single time, almost 7,000 times to refer to Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, for the New Testament writers to ascribe it to Christ, to say he is Lord, they're, they're claiming deity for Christ. No Jew would have doubted it. They all knew what was being claimed. He is Lord of heaven and earth. That is Jesus. And so, um, if you look at Luke at the bottom there of page 2, Luke 1, 41 through 43, it says when uh, speaking of the, um, the uh, encounter between Elizabeth and Mary, uh, when uh, both of them are, are expecting miracle babies, but of a different order, um, Elizabeth, it says, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? What an incredible statement. 
I mean, really, if you meditate on that, you see how really remarkable that is. Jesus hasn't even been born yet. And she is uh, claiming that he is her Lord. She's speaking under the inspiration and the power of the Holy Spirit, saying, how is it the mother of my Lord should come to me? And then the angel says the same thing. Remember how the angel speaks to the shepherds? And in Luke 2.11, it says, Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Um, Christ they were waiting for. They were waiting for the Anointed One. They were waiting for the Messiah. What they didn't know was that He is Lord. Uh, he is God in the flesh. And so the angel announces it. Uh, there are two important uh, quotations in the Old Testament. They're very, very uh, vital concerning this. Um, if you would take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 1, uh, those of you that have the proper outline, uh, you can just look at it on the page. But in Mark chapter 1, uh, it makes an important statement. Mark chapter 1, this is the beginning of the gospel um, that he writes, and I'll just read it there. Mark 1, 1 through 3. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now, what is significant? Well, you look at that word Lord. It is a quotation from the Old Testament. Obviously, a quotation from Isaiah. You know, uh, it's Isaiah 40, um, in which the prophet says, um, or the prediction is given, that a voice of one calling in the desert will come. And that's the prediction of John the Baptist. It's described to him, Many times in the New Testament. But look what it says. It says, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now, clearly the word Lord in the Old Testament is Yahweh. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the only God there is. But what's interesting is when Mark quotes it, he inserts first Malachi 3.1 to make it very personal and intense to Jesus. Malachi 3.1 says, it is written in Isaiah the prophet. And then he says, oh, before I get to Isaiah, let me, let me insert this, Malachi 3.1. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Now, why is that quote from Malachi so important? Because clearly the way being prepared is the way of the one who is sent. He says, I'm sending, it's God the Father speaking, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. Who's speaking to whom here? I will send my messenger ahead of you. Who's saying that? God the Father is speaking to who? To Christ, to God the Son. About whom? About John the Baptist. I'm going to send my messenger, John the Baptist, ahead of you. I, you, messenger. There are three per persons. You see that? So God the Father is preparing whose way? The one who sent. But then the next verse, the Isaiah quote is, prepare the way for who? The Lord. So clearly the one who is sent is the Lord. It's really quite mathematical. You look at it and you say, okay, therefore the one who is sent is Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh. And that's the claim. Very, very difficult to refute that. And frankly, it happens again and again in the New Testament. Frequently, the Old Testament quotations where the word Lord shows up, you look back in the Old Testament, it's Yahweh. And there are many of them that are ascribed directly to Jesus. That's a very, very striking thing. Uh, you also get a similar thing in Philippians 2 and Isaiah 45. Now, I've mentioned this before, but uh, when I was doing scripture memorization in Isaiah, I never, I've never forgotten the impact of the 10 chapters, Isaiah 40 through 49. Those are some of the inc most incredible chapters in, in all the Bible. There, as I've mentioned before, God is having a contest with Israel's idols. Uh, there, God is basically saying, I do things that they can't do. They can't touch me. Besides which, you know, uh, uh, idols just hunk of wood. You know, the carpenter goes and, and buys a piece of wood that won't rot, and he's going to carve it out, and that's all it is. It's, it's really a parody of idolatry. It's just ridiculous, really, that anyone would worship uh, these things. But God also says some things he can, he can do they can't. 
He says, for example, I know the future. I can foretell the future. The idols, they don't know any of these things. Furthermore, he says, I created heaven and earth. Where were they when I created all of these things? And he, and he reaches this pinnacle here in Isaiah 45, and he says this, Declare what is to be presented. Uh, let them take counsel uh, together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me. A righteous God and a Savior, there is none but me. Now, what is God claiming there? What is He saying in those verses? Okay. Is there anyone you can compare in all the universe to God? Is anybody close to Him? Anybody at all? No. He is infinitely above every other being there is in the universe. That is the point of Isaiah 40 to 49. There is no one you can compare to me. No one. I create. I redeem. I do all things for my own glory. I rule over heaven and earth. But what's amazing is many of the things that God says I do alone, Jesus does in the New Testament. That's really a striking thing. And so, in effect, the Jehovah's Witness would have to ask the, answer the question, to whom will you compare me or who is my equal? They'd have to say, Jesus is like you. He's not you, but he's like you. They think he's just a step below God the Father, but he's not God the Father. I'm just saying that cannot be. Isaiah doesn't allow that way of thinking. It's impossible. Either Jesus is God or they have a problem with these verses. Look what he says here. He says in Isaiah 45, there is no God apart from me. Did you see that? There's no little little God. All right, Mitch is back. How many of you need a, a handout? Raise your hand if you need some good folks over here. I'm on page three. Sorry about that, folks. Isn't there another verse where John is saying, you have no Savior but me? Yeah, he says it. Absolutely. There's, uh, there is no Savior but me. He's saying it really right here, Sean. That's a good point. He says, there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Now, look what he says in verse 22. Right here in the middle of, on page 3, Isaiah 45, 20, 22. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow and by me every tongue will swear or confess. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Oh, yeah. That sounds very familiar. What does it sound like? Does it not sound like Philippians 2? Philippians says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, speaking of Christ, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, what? Every knee should bow and every tongue confess, what? That Jesus Christ is what? Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, here's the remarkable thing. In Isaiah... The only God there is, the one who's taking on all idols and trashing them, who's saying there's no one like me at all, culminates the whole thing in saying, everybody's going to be bowing in front of me and swearing in me. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. Well, along comes a Jew named Paul who takes that quote and ascribes it to who? Jesus. Did, did Paul not know what he was doing? Did he not know the significance of the Isaiah 45 quote? You better believe he knew it. He knew very well what he was doing. He was claiming deity for Christ. It's incredible. If, I mean, a Jewish person reading this wouldn't have no doubt about what Paul was doing. I'm not saying they believe it, but there's no doubt whatsoever about what Paul is claiming for Jesus when he says that before him every knee will bow and by him every tongue will swear or confess. He's claiming deity for Christ. Well, I have a copy 
of the Watchtower Bible, the Jehovah's Witness Bible. So I flipped open to Philippians chapter 2. And as so many of these Bibles do, they kind of summarize the teaching in little kind of, you know, NIV does a lot of these things do it, you know. Um, Jesus feeds the 5,000 or Jesus walks on water, whatever. You know what they have in front of Philippians 2, 5 through 11? They have this little statement, Jesus is not God. That's what they have. Why? Because he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. You know, you look at that and you say, is there any hope? You know, because this is one of the pinnacle passages in the New Testament on the deity of Christ. And they have totally missed, totally missed the connection to Isaiah. As a matter of fact, I think some of the strongest proofs for the deity of Christ are in the Old Testament because of the exclusivity of the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's no one like him at all. And so, therefore, anyone who could be compared to him is really an idol or he is God himself. That's why we believe in a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, all equally God. Do you get it? Do you see what I'm saying? This Old Testament quote ascribed to Jesus, strong evidence of the deity of Christ. All right, let's keep going. Jesus' uh, own proof of his deity was based on the word Lord. We've seen this so many times before. And that is in Matthew 22:41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Son of David, they replied. Stop there. Was Jesus the son of David? Yes. Did Jesus reject that title? Would he have said, I'm not the son of David? No. Because we believe the spirit of Christ inspired Matthew to write in Matthew 1.1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Jesus was, in fact, the son of David. No question about it. But here he wants to work on their understanding of the term. Yes, I am the son of David, but I am more than that. I'm the son of God. And that's what he's working on here. So he says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. All right. He answered all their questions. Why didn't they answer his all right. Uh, the reason is they had no category for understanding why David could call his own son Lord. You see, in the Jewish mindset, because of the Ten Commandments and just the honor given to fathers in reference to their sons, they couldn't imagine that a son would ever be greater than a father. The, the son must always honor his father, and therefore the, uh, the, the son is not, could not be called Lord or my Lord by the father. But this is a special case, isn't it? Because the fact is, Jesus is both descended from David and he is the Son of God. And so Jesus goes right to this point and challenges their thinking. Whose son is he? He is the Son of God. Uh, and it's right there in the Scripture. By the way, Jesus based his whole argument on one word in the Hebrew Bible, Adonai again. The Lord said to my Lord. You can circle that, just one word, whole argument based on that one word. Jesus said, uh, not the smallest letter, jot or tittle, nothing will disappear from the law until everything is fulfilled. So you can't have a higher view of Scripture than Jesus had. It's impossible. All right, he had that high view of Scripture. There are other strong claims to deity. For example, the use of the word I am or the, the expression I am. This is the essential grammatical meaning of Yahweh and it was the name that the Lord took to himself in the burning bush. Uh, Jesus takes it to himself again and again in John's Gospel, especially at the key moment of his trial. Now in Exodus 3, 14, uh, 13 and 14, Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Uh, this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So that is clearly 
the name, the unique name that God took for himself in the flames of the burning bush. You want to know what God's name is? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Israelites, the God of the Exodus. What is his name? He is I Am. By the way, why would God choose that name for himself? Why do you think? It's kind of enigmatic, isn't it? Why does he claim I Am? Right, he just is I Am. Right. Only self-existent. And we talked about the attributes of God and self-existence means never needing to have been created. He just is the I am. He's, he is the uncreated creator of all. We're we all derivative. You say we derive our existence from him. He doesn't derive existence from anybody. He is who he is. He is the I am. Well, but Jesus said to his bitterest enemies who are ready to stone him, uh, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, the, the thing that's fascinating about that, you read that, and um, <laughs> what's so incredible is that people, uh, scholars today, Time Magazine, all those others, say Jesus never claimed to be God. Uh, that was put on him centuries later when the myth- mythologies came in and they started deifying Christ. He was just a good man, a good moral teacher, trying to help people live well and all that kind of thing. That is ridiculous. Jesus clearly here is claiming to be God. He's speaking in the most direct Jewish way. I am God. That's what he's saying. You couldn't have had it any more powerfully. And by the way, the Jews at, his, at that time knew it, didn't they? What was their reaction to this? When Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am, what did they do? Well, they picked up stones to stone him, but for some reason their arms got paralyzed as he kind of slipped out and was gone because it wasn't his time yet and he wasn't going to die by stoning. But at any rate, they sure did want to stone him, didn't they? They they were ready to kill him. Why? Because he was blaspheming. As far as they were concerned, he was claiming to be God. Well, my friends, that is not the only place it appears. I did a study on the word, uh, the phrase, ego, eimi in the Greek, I am in the Gospel of John. It is everywhere. It's all over the place. In some key moments, too, that I didn't even realize. For example, this one. In John 4.26, Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. Do you remember that conversation? He says all kinds of interesting things to her. He just lures her into conversation. You know, uh, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who's speaking to you, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. You know, just pulling her into conversation. She's so interested. And then he nails her on sin. You know, says, oh, you know, the man you're living with, he's not your husband either. And you've had five husbands and all that. But she's not put off. There's something attractive about the way he is. Very attractive. And uh, she asked the question about worship, which is a big dividing point between the Jews and Samaritans. He answers in a way that she could never have imagined. Time is coming when you worship neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. God is spirit. I mean, he's just telling her things that he wasn't telling anybody else. It's really remarkable how much he reveals to this Samaritan woman, especially given how seemingly cagey he is at other points in John's gospel. when they ask, tell us plainly if you're the Christ. And he says something like, I've already told you, but you don't believe me. These kind of things. He never seems to speak directly. But this woman says this to him. I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain all things to us. Do you know what Jesus answered? In the Greek, literally, uh, he says immediately, ego eimi. Those are the first words in the Greek. I am. And then there's parentheses, the one who is speaking to you. So to to put it it around, it would be something like this. The one who is speaking to you, the one who, who you've been having a conversation with, I am. Now, what is he claiming there? Yeah, I'm Messiah, but I'm more than that. More than simply Messiah. He is claiming deity. 
And she runs off, leaves her water pitcher there and runs off and says, come and see this man. You've got to talk to him. But he's claiming deity there. It doesn't come across in most of the translations, but that's the, immediately what it says. Ego eimi. Ego is I. Ama. You would. You would, but in this phraseology, the way it is, the subordinate kind of prepositional phrase, it really, the better translation would be something like, the one who's speaking to you, I am. That's what he's claiming. Let me keep going, and you'll start seeing how often he does this. Uh, as, there, as he walks on the water, the disciples are terrified. They think he's a ghost. Do you know what he says to them? I am. That's what he says. He literally says, I am. Do not be afraid. That's literally what he says. The, the translations all come out with, it is I. Don't be afraid. That's not what it says. He's saying, I am, do not be afraid. And then again, uh, there's all these I am statements like I am the bread of life. He says that several times. I am the living bread. I am the light of the world. Uh, I am he who testifies about myself. But I want to show you John 8.24. And this is a key thing in talking to the Jehovah's Witnesses. You see John 8.24 right there on the page? And Jesus said, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, it says, you will die in your sins. You can take that he and just throw it out. Okay? Because literally what he says in the Greek, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. What is he saying there? You have to believe that I am God or you will go to hell. That's literally what he's saying. Die in your sins is a way of saying you'll be condemned and sent to hell on judgment day. Do you realize, therefore, this is essential in communication with the Jehovah's Witnesses? I always use John 8.24 when I talk to Jehovah's Witnesses. I say, this isn't a play topic. This is vital to the salvation of your soul. Jesus says, if you don't believe I am, that he is the I am, you will die and go to hell. I always tell them that. I say, if that disturbs you, good. I want you to be disturbed because you must believe in the deity of Christ in order to be saved. You can't play games with this. It's why the whole Gospel of John was written and so many other scriptures as well. So John 8.24 ends up being huge in this whole list. But there's other places. Uh, for example, John 8.28, uh, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am... And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things that the Father taught me. In other words, when you see me die on the cross, you'll know that I am. All right? Before Abraham was born, I am. Um, and then there's other sayings like, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd. I am the resurrection the life. All right? John 13:19. he says, From now on I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you, will, you may believe that I am. In other words, I'm predicting the future, and when you start to see these things happen, he's talking to his own disciples, when you start to see the persecutions and the other things, when you start to see it happen, you're not going to be blown away, then you'll believe that I am, because I told you ahead of time what would happen. Again, he's claiming deity. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine, the vine dresser. Um, and then, this is one of my favorites, John 18:5, the night that they come to arrest him, all these soldiers are there, 600 of them maybe, with torches, lanterns, and weapons. They go out. Uh, Jesus goes out and confronts them. Judas didn't need to be there and give him a kiss. He's, he's out there confronting them. You know, who are you looking for? And he did give him a kiss, but I'm just saying he wasn't needed. Jesus was ready to die. He, he, was, he was ready to go and lay down his life for the sheep. So he goes out and confronts them, John 18, and he says, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he answers, ego eimi. That's what he says. I am. Now, every English translation wants to help it along and puts a he in there. Or I'm he, I'm Jesus, whatever. It's not what it says. It literally says, ego eimi. And it's even more poignant when you see what happens. All the soldiers drew back and fell to the ground. Well, they're not drawing back and falling to the ground because he says, yeah, that's I'm the guy, you know, or I'm the one. They're drawing back and falling to the ground because he is saying the name of deity. 
He's saying his name. And they draw back and fall to the ground. And by the way, I've noted before in John 18, right before it says that when he said, Ego me," when he said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Right before it says that, it says, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. Why does it say that? Because we already learned that the moment he took the bread and accepted the role of betrayer, Satan entered into him. You remember that earlier? He takes the bread and when he took the bread, Satan entered into him. And the scripture says, and then it was night. All that stuff is important. Everything in John Gospel, it's a symbol. Now is the time of wickedness. Now is the time when Satan is in charge. It's the hour of shadows. But here is this man, Judas Iscariot, who is actually Satan-possessed. It's the only example of Satan possession that I know of in the Bible. So here is Judas, Satan possessed, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. And when therefore Jesus said, Ego me, I am, they all drew back and fell to the ground, including who? Judas. And that includes who? Satan. What does it show you? In pictorial language, Jesus is God. Before me, every knee is going to bow. They're all going to fall. No one takes my life from me, Jesus said. I lay it down freely. Nobody has the power to come arrest me. But I'm giving myself freely. And so that's a little indication of the truth of the words that he had spoken, saying nobody has that power to take my life from me. Yes, go ahead. When Jesus says he is the Son of God, mm-hmm. does that imply deity? Because, I mean, how yep. are you going to be the Son of God unless you die? I would have to say yes and no. Because Adam is called the Son of God in the genealogy in Luke 4. So, uh, to me, that's indication um, and when he claims to be the Son of God in John 5, they, they feel that he's claiming deity. Um, so it's the way he claimed to be the Son of God that was different than uh, merely Adam in the genealogy. Yes? Now, the Gospel was written in Greek. Mm-hmm. So we have this ego amy, mm-hmm. which is also the standard verb. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Jesus was speaking probably Aramaic or Hebrew. Mm-hmm. So there are times when he'd be using the... the standard form of the verb to be and times when he'd be using the tetragrammaton. Right. We'd have to think that, all right, first of all, we don't know exactly what language he was speaking. Lots of Jews spoke Greek. But we, we have to think, let's say it was Aramaic. But when I say to you, I am, in English, those are, you know, that's an English. It wasn't even a biblical language. It's just English. It's our language. We love it. It's the way we communicate. But we know what it means, I am. So there was an Aramaic way of saying I am. There's a Greek way of saying I am. There's a Hebrew way of saying I am. It has a significance. Maybe that's part of the genius of choosing those simple words as God's name because they just come across in every language. And when he's just standing there and saying, unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins, we know what he means. In larger context, he says, you have to believe that I am God. That's what he's claiming. The tetragrammaton is not the standard uh, Hebrew form of I am. No, no, it's God's name. It's a, an unusual form. So, when, mm-hmm. so sometimes when Jesus' words are translated I am, it's translating a standard right. verb. Mm-hmm. Other times it's translating the name of God. Right. And you can't distinguish those. We can't, but as you look at John's gospel, you look at the context of all these things, I don't think there's any accident that John's using ego amy over and over and over and over. He has an ax to grind. He has a point to make. He tells us right from the beginning what his point is. Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He tells it at the climax in, when, in which he says, my Lord and my God, and he says it all the way through. And so um, I think the, the overall lesson of, the, John, of gospel, the gospel of John is the deity of Christ. We've already covered in the middle of page 6, uh, John 8:24. you must believe that Jesus is God in order to be saved. Then there's the Son of Man at his trial. This is really a critical moment. 
In Mark 14, 61 and 62, Jesus is literally, totally, completely, literally on trial for his life. He knows it. And more than that, it's no trial. He knows he's going to die. There's no doubt about it. This is the critical moment. You remember how they try to get all of these false witnesses, but their stories won't cor corroborate? It's very tough to condemn to death a man who never sinned. It's very, very tough. I mean, it's a lot like Daniel, only at a much higher level, where they couldn't find anything wrong with him except that it related to his God. And so, therefore, the only way they're going to put Jesus away is if it relates to his claim to deity. But even there, they can't seem to get witnesses to corroborate things. And so, here, at this critical moment in Mark 14, 61, 62, it says, But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Now, earlier, Susan said, Is that a you know, claim to be deity? Son of God. Well, some more than others. This is clearly, are you claiming deity? When he says, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Are you claiming to be the Son of God? That's who we need to know. And what does Jesus answer? I am. I mean, do you see? It's just, again, it's the ego amy. He is just directly, basically right in their face. And this is the incredible courage of Jesus. We can't charge him with naivete like he didn't know what effect that would have. It seems like in so many cases he's trying to put out fire with kerosene. For example, in John 5, when he's doing miracles on the Sabbath and they come to talk to him about it, he says, um, you know, my father, who is always at his work to this very day, he's working and I'm working too. So he goes up to the next level. He's not only breaking the Sabbath, but he's calling God his own father. He's always going to the next level. Well, here is this critical time. It's the middle of the night, illegal trial. Sanhedrin, they're all there. This is the moment. The high priest charges him under oath. Are you the son of God? And what does he say? I am. He both answers the question and claims deity at once, all at once. Then he supports it with a quote. He says, you know what you're having problem with? You're having problems with the incarnation. That's your problem, that you, a mere man, claim to be God. That is what you're having problem with. So let me help you. And then he quotes Daniel 7. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Read your own prophets. It's right there. That's why I think that Daniel 7 is probably the key quote in the whole Old Testament for the deity of Christ. Uh, there are others. There are many others. But to me, this is key. And why? Because Jesus used it at this critical moment of his trial. He chose the best one. And the best one is the Son of Man vision. And why is it the best one? Because he is both man and God at once. The very stumbling block they were having, the incarnation that a mere man could claim to be God, is prophesied in the Son of Man vision in Daniel 7. Why? Because he's not the Ancient of Days in that vision, but he's the Son of Man coming into the presence of the Ancient, day, ancient of Days, receives glory and honor from the Ancient of Days, and all nations and languages and peoples worship him, the Son of Man. He said, just read it. <laughs> and that's why, to me, one of the key questions in talking to a Jewish person, and the sad thing is they don't know their own scriptures, Many of them, some do, but many do not, say, who is the Son of Man of Daniel 7? Who is he? And they have no good answer. We have a wonderful answer. <laughs> we have a great answer. And someday the Jews will have a wonderful answer, Romans 11 tells us. But right now they just don't know who it might be. But Jesus is quoting it and ascribing it to himself. And so there's that Daniel 7, Son of Man vision. Then you've got Son of God. Uh, we've already talked about uh, John 20, 30 and 31. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name.
Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, In the past God spoke to, to, to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days He had spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom He made the universe. By the way, that's a very important phrase. Through whom He made the universe. Again in Isaiah 40 through 49, a number of times God says, I was alone when I made the universe. I was alone. There was no one with me. Yeah, well then, who's this? <laughs> who's helping him by his side through whom he made all things? And without him, nothing was made that has been made. It's said three times in the New Testament. Hebrews 1, Colossians 1, and John 1. And all three times it describes creation to Jesus Christ. God the Father through the Son. How is it through the Son? I don't know. I don't know what that word through means. But I know that God the Father was not alone in that sense, but the Son was with him when he made it. But in the Old Testament, he says, there was no one with me. So what that means is that Jesus is Yahweh of the Old Testament. That's the claim. Okay? Yeah. Is there anything in Christ that implies deity? Or that just means... Anointed one. Is that like the servant in Isaiah 52? I mean, there's nothing in Well, the word servant certainly doesn't mean... Yeah, yeah. But Christ, no deity in Christ. Now there is, though. I mean, because the Christ is God. And so, therefore, there's a link there. But it just means anointed one. Frankly, the Christ is in one place in Isaiah 45, Cyrus. He's the anointed one, the one that God chose to come in and uh, basically destroy the Babylonians. So he's anointed for that job. It just means somebody anointed to something. But the Christ for us is God. That's all we would say. All right, now, there's some, also some evidence that Jesus possessed deity. First was omnipotence. Um, he stilled the storm with a verbal command. That's very hard to do if you haven't tried it, okay? Um, as a matter of fact, I would say to you, it is impossible. And this was a great sign of deity for the apostles. Remember how they were in the boat and the storm was causing the waves to heave and pitch and this boat was about to go down? Now, when you consider who these men were and what they did for a living, well, what did they do, many of them, for a living? They were fishermen. Now, when you're, when you're with a bunch of fishermen in a boat and they say, we're about to drown, believe it, okay? You know, it's like, it's like um, uh, the analogy I've used before is of a, uh, you know, an airplane and a, a pilot is, is not flying the plane, but you're just sitting next to you and you're chatting with him. And you go through an electrical storm with some uh, turbulence and he's just reading, drinking coffee, no problem. He's like, is this okay? Yeah, it's fine. We do it all the time. But suppose you go through a storm and he's grabbing the arm with white knuckles and he's like this and then at a key moment he unbuckles himself and goes to the cockpit and he's like, and then comes back and he's sweating even worse and said, be afraid at that time. You're in trouble. You are in serious trouble. Well, these disciples believed they were about to drown. So, and Jesus obviously is asleep in the boat. He wakes up, he commands the wind and the waves to stop and then they're even more afraid. And why? Because who is this man? Who is this man? What kind of man could it be that can speak to the wind and the waves and it obeys him? That's scary. And they were scared of Jesus. And it's a good thing in that way to be afraid of who he is. He is God. And so what would that be like to, to sit in a boat and just come to the realization, who is he? You know, it, it's, a, it's, an, almost, it's a terrifying feeling, but it's, you know, if he were going to destroy you, he'd have done it already. He's here not to destroy, but to save. But still, there's that sense they're even more afraid. Multiplied uh, five loaves and two fish, of course, to feed over 5,000. That's creating something out of nothing, folks. There had to be matter, physical stuff that wasn't there before. That's something only God can do, right? Uh, same thing with Malchus's ear. Where did the material for the ear come from? 
He wasn't a plastic surgeon. He created an ear out of nothing. That's nothing for him. He can do all things. Omnipotence. Change water into wine. Uh, eternity. We've already seen this. Before Abraham was born, I am. And then he claims in Revelation 22:13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's eternal. Uh, we see omniscience in so many ways. Uh, Jesus, uh, it says immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit, uh, Mark 2, 8, knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Or in Luke 11:17, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, etc. Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. John 18:4. this is right before Jesus goes out. You know, he's about to be arrested. John puts in an editorial comment under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He does this frequently to prove the deity of Christ. And he says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and said, who is it you're seeking? Why does he put that statement in there? Why does John do that? Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, why does he, why does he put that statement in at that moment? To show he's willing. Okay. He wasn't being duped. He knew what, what he was doing. That's important. But also, it's a picture of Jesus being arrested. That's Jesus arrested. That's usually a degrading and humiliating moment of weakness, right? And so you might be deceived as you looked at, looked at that, as many were, saying, how can he be the Messiah? He's been arrested. You know, it's like the moment where you, people hide their faces with their coats and all that. It's a scary kind of moment in which you're shamed. But John says, there's nothing to be ashamed of. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him. Knowing all that was going to happen and went out and said, what is, who is it you want? And then again, he does it from the cross. John 19:28. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty and they give him wine vinegar. What's so amazing about that is that Jesus surveys the whole Old Testament, considers all of the prophecies that needed to be fulfilled in the death of Christ and says they're all of them. All of them are finished except one. You see that? Isn't that amazing? There's still one left. And he says, I thirst. So that the scripture would be fulfilled. And knowing, it's a knowing thing as he's up there dying on the cross, calculating, just ruling over all things, saying, okay, there's one more thing. I thirst. I've already provided the wine vinegar at the foot of the cross. You'll see it right there. Just very easy. Take the sponge, lift it up to my mouth, and it's done. He's sovereign over all things. It's right there. He says, I thirst. He takes the wine, says, it is finished, and he dies. How does he know all that had now been fulfilled? Because he's omniscient. Remember how he said at the beginning in, in, in John 1, Nathaniel, you know, he saw Nathaniel, and he said, now here's a true Israelite in whom there's no guile. That's a remarkable statement, isn't it? What's remarkable about that? He's never met the man before. And he said, now, now look at the, here's, here's Nathaniel, a true Israelite in whom there's, in whom, in whom there's no guile. Guile is trickery like being a con artist. He is what he seems to be. Well, how long does it take before you know whether somebody is what they claim to be? How long is it before you know somebody's character to know that they're an honest man? You have to know them for a while. All right? In whom there's no guile. Nathaniel's kind of amazed and said, how do you know me? And Jesus' answer, you remember what it was? I saw you. That's how. I saw you under the fig tree. I know what's in your heart. Jesus is omniscient. He is God. All right? You also see omnipresence. Don't see that in his time in the incarnation. We know that. He limited himself in that way. But you do see indications of it uh, after his resurrection. You know, Jesus' resurrection body is just, I don't know, it's a mystery. He's just appearing and disappearing. He's coming, he's going. You're never sure where he is. And then there's the claim that he makes, uh, and surely I will be with you, plural, always, even to the ends of the earth, or the end of, yeah, even to the end of the age. Sorry, the end of the age. 
And so he's claiming omnipresence there. Uh, he is claiming omnipresence. And he's claiming sovereignty. For example, Matthew 11:27, all things have been committed to me by my Father. That's a pretty comprehensive claim. But that's what he claims. And then again, at the end, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So the deity of Christ is proven by uh, uh, his um, authority, sovereignty. And then in John 5, uh, verse 22, 23, and 27, we already quoted this, we'll say it again. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Jesus is claiming there to be the judge of all the earth. He will judge your case and mine. Isn't that a remarkable thought? It is before Jesus that you will present your life. He is the judge. And not just you, but billions of Chinese and, and Indians and uh, Malaysians and everybody in front of Jesus. Jesus is the judge of all the earth. And then John 17, after this Jesus, uh, after he had said this, Jesus had said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. It's a remarkable statement talking about election. But he says, I'm sovereign over the whole thing, over all things. And you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those whom you have given him. Again, a claim, a claim of, of complete sovereignty. Uh, he is omnipotent and sovereign. He's also immortal. This means literally the inability to die. Only God possesses it. But it says in 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, who no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. So it's speaking of God the Father there. While Jesus, clearly Jesus was separated from his physical body, yet he himself can never be killed. Don't you see that? It's impossible to kill him. So, definitely, he died physically. No one has that power. John 10, 17, and 18, the reason my father loves me is I lay down my life only to take it up again. I lay down, I take up. So, that means he's conscious through the whole thing. He is who he is through all of it, right? So, he, he is separated from his body and then he takes up his body again. He's conscious through all of that. He's immortal. Uh, this command I received from my father. And so, therefore, Jesus was still alive even after his death. In John 2, 19 through 21, Jesus answered them. Remember, they said, what sign can you give us because you cleanse the temple to prove your authority to do this? He said, okay, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Who's going to raise it up in three days? Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Okay, what did they think? They thought he was talking about Herod's temple, right? The, the, the building. But what does it say? Jesus, the Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was what? His body. So who's going to raise Jesus' body? Well, in this sentence, in this passage, he does. In other passages, it's the Father. Don't let that trouble you. That's the nature of the Trinity. But Jesus raises his, his own body. And thus Jesus has what we call an indestructible life. In Hebrews 7, 15 and 16, and what we have said is even more clear, if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. That's immortality. That's what Jesus says. Indestructible life. All right? He is also worthy of worship. Worship belongs to God alone, and yet Jesus worships, receives worship and is worship. We already saw it in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. We've seen it in John 5, that all may honor the Son, just as the honor of the Father. And one of my favorite pictures of worship of Jesus is in Revelation chapter 5. <clears throat> in a loud voice, 
They sang, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshipped. Well, that is a great picture of worship of Jesus, isn't it? They're worshipping Christ. All right, that's a good place to stop. We'll talk about next time the kenosis theory. Did Jesus give up some of his attributes uh, while he walked on the earth? Do you have any questions? Are you convinced <laughs> that Jesus is God? Yes. So, I've not really thought about that he, even though his physical body was dead, he was still alive. Okay. Oh, yeah. So, where Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Be with the yes. Today you will be with me in paradise, he said to the thief on the cross. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit, it says in 1 Peter 3. So, yeah. You know, he, he wasn't extinguished there. You know, the Jehovah's Witnesses say this. If Jesus was, was God and died on the cross, then God was dead for three days. They just don't understand. There's just such a flat, wooden way of understanding these things. Yes, he was God and yes, he died. But all that means he was separated from his, mortal, his physical body. It also says in Romans, having died, he can never die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. So it was a unique time in his incarnation when he took on a body to die for our sins. But uh, he will be... Um, you know, forever he's immortal now. So, if you have any other questions, I'll stand and talk. Let's close in, in prayer and then we'll be done. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for this time of studying the deity of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're not in, in uh, fear of any blasphemy here, for we have full confidence in the testimony of Scripture, both Old and New Testaments, that Jesus is God in the flesh. And there's no jealousy between the Father and the Son, but actually you are speaking of the Son and saying, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And therefore, we are not blaspheming to call Jesus your only begotten Son, our God, our Savior, and He is worthy of our worship. Father, I pray that we would proclaim His name so that people may make that confession, Jesus is Lord, and believe in their hearts that God raised Him from the dead. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.